Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Baby, baby. Oh. Welcome, patrons, to the B-side of this week's episode. Joining me once again is Leo Panich. All of you by now will have listened to the free episode that's been out for the last couple of days. I've gotten a lot of really great feedback. Leo is just a luminary. He's an incredible mind. I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, history, some biographical information, just to kind of just give you a feel for what informs the spirit of the show. I actually came across Leo Panich really for the first time officially, you know, face-to-face. I'd sort of seen his work, I've heard of it, but I didn't really pay much attention. But back in 2012, five or six years ago now, I was listening to Behind the News with Doug Henwood. I'm a podcast head, as most of you know. I listen to tons of podcasts, even to this day. They've been instrumental to my political and intellectual development. And Leo and Sam Gindon were on Doug Henwood's show. Big ups to Doug Henwood. And they were talking about their new book, The Making of Global Capitalism. And as many of you were floored by the episode with Leo, I was floored back then. So much so that I dropped everything. I emailed him when he was a professor at York. And I left the graduate program that I was currently in. And I went up to to Toronto to study with him. And the rest is history. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes a little stupidity and impulsivity can pay off, folks. It's needless, nothing, you know, it's no stretch to say that this, this show would not exist if it weren't for the, you know, me, me hearing Leo and Sam on Doug Henwood's behind the news radio show podcast. So, you know, this is really me trying to get, I'm not going to get too sentimental here, but I really, I do, I really do mean this uh, from the bottom of my heart. I think that this kind of thing is really important. And this, this show, if nothing else is my attempt to pay it forward and hopefully to open up other people's minds and eyes and opportunities and, and, and whatnot open up people's horizons to new thinkers. And so I hope that I was able to do that in this episode and other episodes and in, in future episodes to come. So in any case, I'll, I'll get off the sentimental train. Uh, this is a really fantastic chat. We talk about Leo's time on the left and what it means to be a socialist intellectual. I think you all are really going to enjoy this. Thanks again, all of you. My patrons mean the world to me. I wouldn't be able to do any of this without you. So thanks again, and enjoy this B-side with Leo Panich. All right, everybody, joining me uh, for the B-side this week is Leo Panich. How are you, Leo? Hi, Adam. I'm fine. Welcome back. So I wanted to take this opportunity to pick your brain about some of the experiences you've had on the socialist left. Uh, we were just talking off air and I was, I was sort of mentioning to you that I wanted to sort of pick your brain about the art form of being a socialist intellectual. And uh, you, you, you rightly responded that, well, Adam, it's an art. Uh, how, how does one uh, articulate an art? It's more of an intuition. Uh, but we're going to try to do just that. I'm going to ask Picasso how to paint and uh, hopefully... I can get something of an answer uh, from you. So going back, let's go back to your story. You started with Ralph Miliband at the LSC in uh, 19, late 1960s, correct? Yeah, I uh, was a graduate student uh, doing an MA at the London School of Economics in 1967, having come there from Winnipeg in Canada, very uh, wet behind the ears. 
although I had already uh, mumbled to uh, Sam Gindon, who is my co-author on The Making of Global Capitalism, but then, you know, my closest mate in first-year university, I mumbled to him on reading Marx's preface to the Critique of Political Economy, <laughs> I think I, I think I'm a Marxist. Oh, scandalous! Uh, uh, <laughs> at the same time, you know, I, I couldn't distinguish that very much from, you know, uh, perhaps being a social democrat at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, so very wet behind the ears, definitely. Yeah. What was the What was the climate like at the LSE in the late '60s? Uh, Ralph Miliband, being the luminary that he was there, had surely had gathered around him a fairly good cadre of students. It was uh, sort of one of the centers of what would become the new, or what was already at that point, the new left in uh, parts of Britain. Uh, what was it like going into that environment? And because uh, I want to, I want to paint, paint a picture and, and sort of set the stage. A lot of folks, including myself, look at that moment as kind of like the glory days, the heyday of the Marxist left. And I don't know how you feel about it, but but uh, it's kind of like a paint a picture for my listeners. Leonard Cohen uh, once said that the 60s lasted 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> Maybe for uh, him, uh, what he can uh, remember of it anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it, 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 one shouldn't overblow it. That said, okay. Okay. Uh, that said, uh, well, first of all, you know, what you need to know is, is that in the 1960s, and this was especially true of, of uh, the LSE, the universities themselves were not populated by radical professors for the most part. Hmm. Miliband was very much an exception, even at the LSE. Uh, the dominant professoriate at the LSE uh, were uh, on the right. Uh, Popper was there, yes, uh, right? right? Uh, and, and in economics, uh, you know, a lot of them, uh, like Robbins, were, uh, you know, anti-Keynesians and closer to Hayek. Hmm. Um, and Hayek had been there for a while. Uh, the LSE didn't hire Marxist historians like E.H. Carr, who wanted to live in London. Uh, so, you know, although the LSE had a, a certain tradition going back to, especially in the politics department, Lasky, who was Miliband's, Harold Lasky was Miliband's mentor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, for the most part, the, the, the student body by the 1960s especially was very radical. It was radical right across the United Kingdom and increasingly in North America as well, uh, as, you know, obviously as well as in, in France and Germany and Italy. But uh, the professoriate for the most part wasn't. There were some junior professors like Robin Blackburn, uh, who went on, to, who was one of the founders of New Left Review, uh, right. very close to Perry Anderson, um, who was a junior lecturer there and... Uh, for supporting the student revolt at the LSE yeah, yeah. around the, uh, not only the Vietnam War, but the uh, school's investments in South Africa. Um, the, there were massive protests, and the school was closed. The second year I was there, when I started my PhD, it was closed for four months. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, Blackburn was fired. Um, as was uh, another Maoist professor, I think a mathematician. 
Um, so, you know, there were the, the, the smatterings of, you know, some professors there, Lawrence Harris at the time, Magnat Desai. But for the most part, the professoriate was, if anything, right-wing. And uh, the student body was, yes, was very, very left-wing. Yeah, this is all covered for folks. If you're interested in this history, it's fantastic. This is covered in Michael Newman's book, uh, Ralph Miliband and the Politics of the New Left. Yeah. It's a really fantastic book. I'm sure he, he, he leaned on you quite heavily for, for a lot of content in that book. Well, you know, and just to show you uh, how things were at that time and, you know, how one stumbled around, even amidst all this radicalism, um, I had said when I uh, won a Commonwealth scholarship to study in the United Kingdom that I wanted to study economic planning. Uh, you know, I thought that was the most radical thing one could do. And uh, they put me in a public administration MA. And it was the most deadly, boring thing I had <laughs> ever encountered. And I thought I couldn't be able to stand it uh, until I came across a fellow Canadian who had come at the same time and was complaining to him. And he said, well, why don't you come up and hear these lectures by this guy Miliband, hmm. who I'd never heard of? Hmm. Uh, and I went up to uh, Miliband's lecture, and yes, it was like a light went on. He was doing the lectures that became his famous book published in 1969, The State and Capitalist Society. Huh. The light went on, and I said, oh, this is what it is. This is what it's called. And this was part of a MA in political sociology, and I convinced uh, the powers that be to let me switch from an MA in public administration to an MA in political sociology. And my faith was probably cast uh, then and there. You know, I had thought that I would probably go back and become a, a radical lawyer. What does a working class kid know about going to university? You know, you become a lawyer or a doctor at that time. Um, but, but having discovered this, I got, I got bitten. And I think that happened to a lot of people who came across the exciting new Marxist writings, uh, not only Miliband's, but others, you know, uh, stuff that was appearing in New Left Review, uh, uh, in the Socialist Register, which Miliband and uh, his co-editor John Savile founded in, in 1964, uh, reading things, especially if you're an historian, like E.P. Thompson's The Making of the English Working Class, uh, which was the foundation of the, a new social history, history from below. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff, yes, it was like opening a door against the conventional economics, political science, history that we you know, were initially taught as undergraduates. Now, that's part of a generation. You mentioned Thompson and others. Those are the, 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 the folks who were uh, broke away from the Communist Party after uh, the Soviets rolled tanks in 1956 um, and to, to squash a, a popular revolt. Um, folks like Thompson and others had had enough of communism, but, but they retained their socialist and Marxist principles. So it was an, it's an interesting cadre to find yourself uh, you know, enmeshed in at that moment. Yes. Uh, they, uh, uh, it was also, of course, the Khrushchev revelations uh, about Stalin. Hmm. Uh, but it, the, and the invasion of Hungary, you're absolutely right. Uh, and they tried to found a dissenting journal inside the Communist Party hmm. for which they were expelled, and, and uh, that was the new reasoner. Um, Miliband, who was never in a Communist Party, uh, joined that project with them, 
Um, and it was the New Reaser that then came together with a radical journal that had been started by a bunch of very young uh, Oxford uh, and Cambridge students, primarily Oxford, one of whom was Perry Anderson, Charles Taylor was involved, Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall yeah. uh, it, it was a, a, a combination uh, of those two journals. Kind of like Jacobin. So that was Universities and New Left Review. The uh, Review, that's right. Ja- Jacobin has a similar kind of niche. They had little coffee shops established throughout London. Yes, that's And reading they, groups and that's that right. type of that's thing. That's right. Yeah. And, and they formed uh, the New Left Review. But hmm. there was a very two very different traditions there. The, the young intellectuals were interested in continental Marxist theory. Um, uh, you know, uh, had rediscovered Gramsci. Uh, they were hot to trot about Althusser, etc. And uh, the Marxists who left the Communist Party uh, were much more oriented to being linked to working class traditions and to working class activists. Uh, that's not to say that the New Left Review people wouldn't have wanted that, but they weren't as linked. And, and this produced uh, quite a division, uh, which led to a split, uh, whereby Thompson uh, left the board of New Left Review. And, and it was out of that split uh, that the Socialist Register was founded uh, in 1964. So a lot of, a lot of lineages that, that are still somewhat active today, and divisions even, uh, sort of started in that particular moment. Uh, between, say, maybe the cultural studies kind of collective with, you know, Stuart Hall, Raymond Williams on the one hand, and then maybe sort of like the Marxist historians and sociologists, perhaps, and and E.P. Thompson and Ralph Miliband and others, uh, Saville uh, and others in in that moment. So so what was your particular relationship uh, with with, with Ralph? And uh, what was the kind of political project that he instilled in you? Do you think that was sort of operative from day one? Or are you sort of in, did you spend the rest of your career sort of outlining that agenda? Or Mm -hmm. was there a tremendous amount of, 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 you know, creativity and, and transformation there? Well, you know, it was very exciting being involved uh, and very fortuitous to be involved on the ground floor of this attempt to fill an enormous lacuna in Marxist thought, which Mm -hmm. was an adequate theory of the state, to break away from the economic reductionism of Marxism, uh, its its, uh, uh, preoccupation with theories of economic crisis and breakdown, uh, its uh, economistic interpretation of inter-imperial rivalry. Uh, you know, it was all ex- very exciting being on the ground floor of the development of a Marxist theory of the state. And others with me, you know, we immediately started trying to read Poulantzas in French, which was no easy task, let me tell you. And, and I'm not sure we got nearly as far as we should have until it was public uh-huh. until it was published in English some four or five years later. This would have been his political power and social classes. Social classes, which was published class in, and political power in, in 1968. Okay. Uh, just months before Miliband's State and Capitalist Society. And there's a footnote in Miliband that says this important book came out just as this one was going to press. Um, so, yeah, I was very excited being involved in that and, and uh, the subsequent debates between Miliband and Poulantzas. And, you know, what was going on intellectually 
in that sense was something very positive. Students of my era and the elite theorists like C. Wright Mills in the United States really represented this, uh, had done a profound rejection of the kind of mainstream pluralist theory that was the foundation of sociology and political science and, and generally the intellectual consensus about you know, these societies were democratic, not in the sense that there was equal power, but that, you know, there was everybody had enough power through the panoply of interest groups they were involved in to countervail anybody having too much power. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with no examination of the capitalist nature of the society, hardly at all. And what, you know, we were engaged in uh, was the development, not just a rejection, a critique of that, uh, which elite theory had already provided, but was a positive alternate theory of how politics worked, how democracy worked in a capitalist society uh, in the advanced capitalist world. Uh, And that was really, you know, very exciting because the sense was we were developing something new. So, you know, intellectually, uh, in many respects, I think a lot of people have often thought, and maybe rightly thought, uh, that I'm not much of a Marxist because, I you know, I've never put much stress on uh, those aspects of Marxist economic theory uh, that define uh, value narrowly mm-hmm. in terms of the labor theory of value mm-hmm. um, and that are preoccupied with the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, etc. Um, uh, you know, I, I think I embraced the notion of Marxism in the sense that I felt that we were developing something better, that we were developing something new, that we were, sure, building on, on, on uh, Marx and even Marxism, mm-hmm. uh, but in order to get past what seemed to me its limitations, and seemed, I think, to many of us its limitations. Uh, so that was a very exciting intellectual project, but the the other side of what was going on, um, I, I think there was a connection between uh, my own past and Miliband's past that was, you know, not quite as intellectual and more oriented to uh, socialist class formation. Um, that is, that uh, he, uh, like Thompson and Saville, uh, was already very engaged in t- trying to create socialist education societies uh, amongst working class people, uh, where they would, you know, try to develop their capacities to think about how the society worked, what its contradictions were uh, in the 1960s, etc. And that he had been doing that uh, in the 1960s, you know, before I get to the LSE. And myself, coming out of a strong working-class community, uh, one where, you know, communists and social democrats were elected through the post-war period, uh, with parents who were active, uh, both my mother and father, uh, in uh, working-class union uh, and, and fraternal societies, uh, support societies of various kinds in the community, I was also very oriented uh, not just to, you know, doing the intellectual work, uh, but to engaging in a continuous process 
of working class formation and development. Mm -hmm. And I felt very strongly, of course, when I got to Britain, although I had known some of this in Winnipeg, uh, uh, which was a rather unique working class community, um, you know, that the British working class was closer to socialism than the Canadian in this respect. Uh, because of all of the industrial militancy that was going on at that time. Uh, there were a tremendous number of strikes uh, in the old industrial sector, in the new public sector, etc. Uh, that was very exciting. It's what I ended up doing my PhD thesis on. Um, but I was under the impression, because of that militancy, uh, that there was a deeper commitment to socialist ideas, to for socialist development, and there really wasn't. I think that was naive. This militancy was primarily economistic militancy. And uh, the union leadership wasn't doing a hell of a lot to turn that into a socialist militancy. Even the communist the shop stewards uh, weren't doing nearly enough in that respect. Um, and, you know, to some extent, the origins of Corbynism, uh, which go back to Tony Benn, uh in, in the 1970s, mm -hmm. the early 1970s and late 1960s in Britain, was precisely about trying to get the Labour Party and the unions to play that kind of role. But this goes back to our earlier conversation. So, so you think, I mean, in that particular moment, I'm trying to draw comparisons, and sometimes comparisons come too cheap, too cheaply, far too cheaply, you know, and in terms of drawing, you know, lines of demarcation between now and then. But but certainly there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big difference here. Well, I mean, one of the things is that rather than, I think you and I have talked about this, you know, in other contexts, the, the labor and socialist militants used to go into, you know, working class occupations. Um, and at some point around the time that your generation was, was getting into school, uh, they started going into the universities instead, yeah. perhaps. And so a lot of the organic intellectuals of the working class uh, sort of were, 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 I don't know, they disappeared or they ended up in the universities in some, in some stretch. What, what role do you think that plays in the transformation? You know, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a very important point, Adam. You're right to raise it. Yeah, a lot of working class kids like myself born uh, in 1945, let's say, or just before, uh, were born in, in uh, a capital class-divided capitalist society, but nevertheless with a golden spoon in our mouths because of the booming era of capitalism uh, after, in the decades after 1945 and the opportunities it created for uh, people like us to get into university. Uh, and and uh, those of us that did, and I was the first person in my family to go to university, my older brother didn't, um, uh, there was a, you know, a certain sense that we had a responsibility as intellectuals mm -hmm. not to abandon our class. I'm not saying that the majority of people did that. I think the majority, of course, uh, you know, looked to the ladder of success uh, and, you know, uh, as likely ended up being... Uh, you know, working on Wall Street uh, or working as corporate lawyers or what have you. But enough of us, I, I think, had that sense that, you know, as we left our working class mates behind, we had a responsibility to try to study the working class, to try to understand the politics that it was contained in, etc. Now, that might have created a bit of a 
guilt complex and even a certain extremism uh, on the part, and, and, and maybe a romanticization on the part of us, certain of us, of what this militant working class in the 1960s really amounted to. Uh, we may have we may have overblown its revolutionary potential. Certainly, those I didn't who went into new revolutionary Leninist parties, you know, searching for a better Leninism in the Trotskyist or Maoist parties than was already present in the communist parties, uh, and certainly in the social democratic parties. Uh, they probably had many of them a. Uh, uh, I think a, a overly uh, optimistic and even romanticized sense of the militancy of the working classes, mm-hmm. um, of, of the possibilities of revolution, uh, and indeed they may have felt that as well about uh, you know the revolutionary potential of the student movement. Uh, those who went into Leninist parties wanted to connect it, of course, uh, to the working class. There were plenty of others who probably didn't have that link to a working-class past who treated that student rebellion as an alternative to uh, a a working-class politics, you know, who picked up the Marcuse kind of uh, idea uh, that the working class was integrated and the new revolutionary elements, uh, if not revolutionary students themselves, were at least the black power movement, if you like, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if that helps, but I think that was the context that we were operating in. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so it was an exciting time, but at the same, on the same, on the other hand, you know, it, it, that that self-assessment of that that being the '60s generation, being the radical generation, might have been a, a, a sort of a historical revisionist project that that results from your self-assessment at the time, which may have been incorrect in hindsight. Yeah, I mean, I I was one of those people, uh, for whatever reason, partly the association with Miliband, but not only, I think, uh, that, you know, never thought that we were on the cusp of revolution. Um, uh, I may have thought that the working classes were, you know, more closer to socialism than they actually were, but I never thought we were on the cusp of revolution in the 60s. Certainly, it was very energizing and exciting you know, to show up in France in 1968, uh, in the wake of May 68. Uh, it was extremely, you know, uh, energizing and exciting to be part of, of the great anti-Vietnam demonstrations or of the occupation of, of uh, the London School of Economics that I was part of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, those, that, that was all certainly exciting and, and, and important. Um, yeah, but, but uh, you know, w- one could also get carried away. And just as all, you know, you see some of the extravagances uh, today uh, in uh, the militancy with which uh, 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 certain types of politics, uh, uh, especially, say, anti-racist or uh, anti-patriarchal, anti-sexist politics mm-hmm. are conducted, uh, anti-authoritarian politics are conducted. You know, you you do see, you saw then as well, a certain intolerance on the left uh, of anyone who wasn't ultra-revolutionary. 
there were those tensions, uh, you know, those inevitable ultra tensions that arise at radicalizing moments. Interesting. So a lot of parallels with with today. I've had some. There's some uh, absolutely, you know, the kind of stuff that went on this week with her, uh, with uh, at, at Berkeley. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where, uh, God, I'm, I'm slipping his name, um, hardly shaken. His class was invaded and he was accused of, uh, you know, virtually being a fascist for having an in-class exam and, right, and, right. and, and, you know, then his radical teachings and work on Latin America were challenged on the grounds that a white man shouldn't be teaching, teaching about the oppression of workers in Mexico. Yeah, you know, those yeah. type of extravagances, you know, were somewhat visible then as well. Um, and, you know, one has to keep one's head. It drove some Marxist professors away from the left. Oh, I bet. At, yeah. at that time. Uh, well, you know, Adorno's uh, classroom yeah, was famously exactly. occupied in 1968. Yeah, exactly. uh, Jacques Lacan's classroom was occupied yeah. and, and all of these people. Now, yeah. I mean, hell, who knows? Maybe there's, there's some good reasons to, 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 you know, to criticize both of those people. Yeah, I'm exactly. sure of it. I, mean, I think there was, a, <laughs> there was too great a counter reaction on the part of some people. Yeah, yeah. Um, Adorno prime among them, of, of yes, course, and, and he was one of them. Lacan was was certainly a snob, as as he, you know, <laughs> those 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 psychoanalysts out there can be. That's a that's a fun rib to my friends out there who I know are going to hate that line. But uh, <laughs> yeah, what did he say? Lacan looked at the looked at the woman who who mounted his desk and took her clothes off, and he looked at her very calmly, and he said, "You're looking for a master. You'll get one." Meaning that this authoritarian tendencies wow. that they have is yeah. going to lead them right into the hands of of a demigod type of figure who you know who will right. then who will then lead them astray and yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems to be the history of, of yeah. that ultra movement. Well, and I have to say, I think Miliband kept his head over all this, and, and he was exemplary in that respect. He, he remained on the side of the students. He, was, he re, yeah, he he remained on the side of the students, but you know, without uh, I, I think also tailing them, mm-hmm. uh, if you know what I mean, I uh, yes, you know, absolutely. and without refraining, at least uh, uh, in direct conversation from, you know, from criticizing those aspects, but not being prepared to go public with an attack on them, nor did it shake his belief uh, in, in the need for a revolutionary radicalization. Right, so there we are. We're we're learning that there's there's a you know t- trick number one to being a socialist <laughs> intellectual. We're we're getting around to it here, bit by bit. Uh, incidentally, it's not, not not sort of dissolving into the rhetoric and into the 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 ethos of the of the, the spirit of the moment, remaining critical at a critical perspective. However, uh, always siding with the impulses because they're good ones, even if they're, you know, the expression is uh, somewhat misguided sometimes, perhaps. All right, so what? Let's 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 get into the figures that are there, the kind of figureheads who have who have long passed, who you crossed paths with and marked your life in a, in a really serious way. We've already talked a little bit about Ralph Miliband, but that's, I mean, you and you and Ralph were very close up until his death in '94. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what's I mean, what was what was Ralph Miliband like? He's just kind of a mythical figure for millennials out there, you know, who who came of age long after he passed away. Uh, what was it like uh, growing up under his tutelage, and then and then becoming a peer and working alongside him as as the co-editor of the Socialist Register? 
Well, you know, he 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 was a human being. Yeah, he's yeah. just a guy, right? He's yeah, just a, yeah, to yeah. you, to you. Yeah, uh, and he would be he would be to any to anyone who, who was close yeah. to him. I, yeah. I don't think one should, in any sense, mythologize him. He himself uh, would refer to people like uh, Thompson or or Eric Hobsbawm as the intellectual eagles, uh, and huh. someone like himself as, as uh, the the people who who couldn't fly. Um, so, so you know, the, the, you know, when when should be careful of this. I think, yeah, uh, I, I, you know, sure. uh, we struck up a, a close friendship, um, you know, for the kinds of reasons one normally does. I was already married, uh, uh, and his partner Marion and my wife Melanie got on very well. That's important. Yeah, yeah. The fact that Miliband, who was uh, the the son of Polish Jews who uh, went to Belgium in the interwar period and then uh, were escapees from Nazism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we part of the bond that we had was that we liked certain Jewish foods together or, you know, could crack a Jewish joke. Uh, you know, th- th- those, were ele- <laughs> you those were elements in our relationship. Just um, everyday stuff, then, huh? Yeah, yeah. Surely there, surely there was an intellectual bond well, there of in terms of I working mean, closely with someone. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, uh, and mm-hmm. and I think both being, uh, and and of course, me very much junior to him, both being involved in trying to think through this new Marxist theory of the state. Uh, you know, me uh, uh, taking up what had been his previous magnum opus. Uh, his book on parliamentary socialism mm-hmm. in the context of saying, you know, a, an amendment of it, 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 looking at the conflict it, between uh, the unions and the militant workers in the unions and labor governments. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the Labor Party had always been a party that proclaimed class harmony rather than class struggle. Their goal was to educate the ruling class to socialism, to bring the working class into a partnership with uh, the ruling class, etc. Um, and, and, but nevertheless, it was always a class party. So insofar as there was class struggle, this meant that this party of class harmony you know, always threw up class struggle inside of it. And, right. and my PhD thesis was a study of this class struggle inside the Labour Party bet- between the unions and the Labour government's attempt to impose wage restraint uh, against these militant trade unions who were pushing up uh, prices and squeezing profits uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. And uh, he put much more emphasis on the ideology of parliamentarism uh, as determining what the Labour Party did. And I rather put emphasis on the kind of parliamentarism that they did uh, was determined by their ideology of class harmony. Their, their, their claim that they, that they represented the national interest better, better than the conservatives because they represented all classes, not just the upper classes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, there was a creative, I think, and he supported this work of mine a lot and and there was a creative interaction with between us as uh, you know I was investigating uh, the Labour Party in the late 60s and and through the 1970s 
And, you know, I'd learn from him. I'd come back from researching at a Labour Party conference and say, hey, I just heard this incredible, radical speech by this guy, Neil Kinnock. He's you know, going to be he's got he's going to be the new socialist leader. And, and he'd say, hang on a minute, Leo, I've seen guys like him before. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, he isn't going to stay so radical very long. And of course, he was right. Um, on the other hand, I would come back and say this would be a decade later. You know, I've, I've struck up a close relationship with Tony Benn. And now, now that he is clear he's not going to be leader of the party, having lost the deputy leadership as he did very closely to that arch-reactionary laborite Dennis Healy, uh, he was then, Ben was then abandoned by a lot of the young Turks who had been around him, who expecting, expecting he would be leader of the party and prime minister. And he was very much on his own intellectually. And, and you know, I went to Miliband and, and others that I knew in London and pointed this out and said, this is ridiculous, you guys should be in touch with him. And out of that came, although I went back to Canada, I was teaching Canada by that point, uh, out of that came a kitchen cabinet which used to meet at, Perry, at, at, uh, at, at Tony Benn's house with Miliband and Perry Anderson and Blackburn and, 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 and Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Hillary Wainwright, etc. Uh, yeah. So you know there was a creative interaction, but it was it was political as much as intellectual always, because because the kind of research we did was research on the politics around us. You know we weren't researching uh, uh, the structure of the brain. Uh, we were researching uh, part, party politics. Right. So let's let's go back to that because you just railed that off, and I'm I, you, I'm floored by this. So Jeremy Corbyn, who's on the cusp of of, of state power in in, in the UK, uh, you know, Labour Party uh, here in the, the next election, he sat as a as a young MP. He sat in uh, Ralph Miliband's kitchen, yeah. flanked by Tony Benn, Robin Blackburn, uh, Perry Anderson, founders of the New Left. Yeah, region. not not Hillary Rain. Not Wayne, not, right? not 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 nightly, and only for a couple of years. Uh, it was sure. more often, sometimes in Miliband's kitchen. It was more often in uh, Tony Benn's sitting room. Uh, but but uh, you have to remember that uh, uh, in Ralph Miliband's kitchen, you would come across. Uh, and Ralph Miliband's sons came across. Uh, you know, the, the most impressive array of Marxist uh, intellectuals and political actors uh, of the time, very often. He was, you know, an important center uh, of, of uh, connecting people that way, from his friendship with C. Wright Mills in the United States to his close relationship with... Uh, the founders of Monthly Review, uh, especially Harry Magdoff, uh, to uh, uh, Ruth First uh, in, in South Africa, uh, to uh, the people close to Il Manifesto, Rosanna Rosanda in Italy, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so uh, now, uh, Ralph's sons, Ralph and Marion's sons, were nightly uh, part of those kinds of uh, uh, discussions around the dinner table or the lunch table, and and their their development, uh, their articulateness, their confidence politically has a great deal to do with this. But they didn't end up uh, in the Labour Party taking the kind of position, uh, although their positions were different, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn did. 
So, you know, you, you, know you can't, you, you have to be careful in not putting too much emphasis just on, you know, on those kinds of, of uh, soirees, if you like. I see. Right, right. Just for listeners who, who may be completely blind to UK politics, that's Ed and uh, David Miliband. Ed was the leader of the party uh, for, for several years, um, and uh, David was an MP himself. And on the, in the shadow cabinet or the cabinet? Yeah. The cabinet. Oh, no. He, uh, yes, uh, he was, he was uh, the, the foreign secretary in, 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 in uh, Blair and, uh, and Brown's governments. Yeah, uh, so, so the, these people grew up listening to these things, and so you're right to say that you know ideology doesn't flow necessarily from the from the exposures uh, that yeah, you. Yeah, well, to some extent, but yeah, I mean, you know, people take different positions coming out of this. Yeah, yeah. So, so one figure I want to pick your brain about before we part ways here, Tony Benn. You mentioned this this guy is a lightning rod on, on sort of left social democratic uh, wing of the Labour Party, although he was marginal marginalized in the later years. Uh, he he nonetheless kind of. Uh, held down the fort, so to speak, uh, so that somebody like a Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonald could rise yeah. uh, in, in this particular fortuitous moment. What was your relationship like with Tony Ben? How well, did you strike I, that off? I, I, I want to qualify your held down the fort. Uh, okay. What was so important and exciting about uh, the Benite moment in the Labour Party in the 70s and this uh, was taking place in other social democratic parties and to some extent also in the American Democratic Party between 68 and 72, was the emergence of a attempt to democratize and radicalize social democracy beyond what it had been in the 20th century. An attempt to go beyond the reforms uh, the bureaucratic but necessary welfare reforms, redistributive reforms that had been introduced uh, uh, by social democratic governments, an attempt mm -hmm. to capture, to learn from the rhetoric and the practices even of uh, the new social movements and their orientation to a more participatory uh, democracy, if you like. And, and what Ben uh, uh, did, and, you know, he had begun as, as uh, you know, a, a radical guy in one sense who saw his main task, even when he, you know, was first asked when he, before he was nominated as an MP in 1951, what, you know, what would you want to do? And, and he said, I mainly would want to educate socialists. I'd want to make socialists. Nevertheless, he was, you know, he was a media-oriented techie you know, new technology kind of politician through the 50s, you know, mm -hmm. close to the, uh, the liberation movements in Africa and so on, but, you know, hardly seen as on the most radical wing of the party. But he learned from what we were talking about in the late 60s, from this explosion of, of radicalism in the late 60s, both young worker radicalism and young student radicalism. Um, and the anti-authoritarianism of it, uh, that he, he tried to channel that into the Labour Party. Um, and I think it was that that captured a young person like Corbyn. Were he merely trying to hold the fort of the old Labour left, that never would have happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this was very important. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I... I uh, you know, I'm not sure I appreciated this fully uh, at the time. 
It, mm-hmm. it was only perhaps, uh, you know, into the mid-1970s, even when I came back to Canada, that I could fully see the radicalism of this attempt to change the Labour Party. But I took the view that, uh, I think we discussed this last time, that it wouldn't succeed because it would inevitably split the party and he'd be blamed uh, for taking it to the point of splitting the party. Right. Uh, and this is exactly what happened. And, you know, a split party can't win elections. And in the face of Thatcher, not winning elections means you carry the burden of letting Thatcher in. Just as if Sanders had won the nomination and had lost to Trump, the people supporting Sanders and Sanders himself would have carried the burden of letting Trump in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which would in itself have been ludicrous, but that's what the Clintonites would have been able to hammer them with. And they would have hammered them with it, you can be sure. Uh, so, uh, and that was why Ben got marginalized and why Corbyn got marginalized. And I was going to say the very same thing could have happened to Corbyn had there not been this ground. Well, yes, it did happen to it did happen to Corbyn. You know, most of the Benite supporters, <clears throat> Tony Blair was one of them. <clears throat> you know, when they saw the writing on the wall, and this is what happened to Kinnock, first of all. Uh, well, Hillary Ben, for God's sake. Yes, they moved. Uh, <laughs> You know, they moved with uh, uh, the tide. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't fight them, join them. Above all, if you can't find, f- f- fight Rupert, Mur- Rupert Murdoch and his control of the British media, now his control of the British, uh, the American media, Fox News, etc., uh, mm-hmm. then you join them. You know, you, you kiss their, pardon the expression, they kiss their ass. Right. Um, you it, bend the knee. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So, you yeah. know, Corbyn did not did not do this, uh, but as a result, he and others in the campaign group, as it was called, of MPs around Ben, uh, yes, were very marginalized in the Parliamentary Labour Party. They remained the link to whatever campaigns were going on in Britain. You know, Corbyn uh, is a campaigner, and he would be linked to whatever campaigns were going on uh, in Britain, whether it was the miners' strike or whether it was the struggles against uh, Thatcher's attempt to impose a poll tax on working people for, in terms of their right to vote, uh, or whether it was the militarization, uh, uh, you know, or, or uh, of the Gulf, first Gulf War, uh, let alone the second one. Uh, you know, uh, they were those MPs were the link. Uh, but they were marginal, very marginal, until Corbyn was out of the blue, uh, totally out of the blue, elected leader of the Labour Party uh, uh, in, in a few years ago. Right. So uh, that relationship sort of uh, matured throughout the years. Uh, what was Tony Benn uh, passed away in uh, 2004? No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. After that, well, I'm, I'm completely. When did he pass oh, away? Ju- just uh, it must have just been three, two thousand years yeah, ago, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah. I don't know why. He 14. he said to me, um, we were walking in a park in London uh, during the days of the Blair government. During you know, seeing how appallingly realist, without any imagination, uh, the the Blairite government was. He said, uh, how long do you think this long night of the left is going to last, Leo? And I said, I thought it could last as long as the period between uh, 
the Chartists in Britain and the 1848 revolutions uh, and the uh, great strikes, the mass, say, dock strike uh, or, or uh, the match girl strikes of the late 1880s, early 1990s. And that meant a period of some 40, 50 years. And he turned to me and smiled and said, well, in that case, I'm going to have to live until 2030. <laughs> um, and he was no young chicken by that point. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a wonderful comment. And uh, I very much wish he had lived, you know, when Corbyn uh, uh, was elected leader and then when he did so well in, in uh, this last election, I very much, and many others who were friends of Tony's, wish he had lived to see this. It certainly would have been a triumph. What was your relationship, if any, with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and and what do you make of, of that? Yeah, no, it was entirely mar- it was entirely marginal. We met once mm-hmm. or twice. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes I'd go into uh, Tony's house when I'd visit London, and Jeremy would be coming out. Uh, so we knew each other, but, you know, just to look at, really. I mean, and we knew each other enough that when he was elected leader, Hillary Wainwright and I uh, were the first intellectuals to score an interview with him, uh, which was published in Red Pepper. And I, and I think even perhaps on Jacobin, in Jacobin. Um, yeah, I think Jacobin did uh, republish yeah. that, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that also had to do with knowing, uh, you know, people who he brought in around him, like Seamus Milne. Uh, the radical Guardian journalist uh, who, hmm. you know, went into his office and has become uh, his main speechwriter and and advisor and and organizer. So let's take the last you know four or five minutes here and uh, let's talk a little bit about the Socialist Register. You have been the editor for over thirty five years now. Uh, it's now you and uh, Greg Albo, a colleague of yours at uh, York University. Uh, what's the kind of trajectory that you've sort of mapped out for that for that publication yeah. in terms of trying to frame the project of the contemporary left and moving forward? Well, that you know, my becoming a co-editor of it uh, was very much uh, a matter of my uh, close relationship with with Miliband, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, he turned to me and asked another former student of his, George Ross, who taught at uh, Brandeis. Uh, whether we would uh, join him as co-editor. This was in uh, 1983. John Savile, by that point, while he kept his name on the masthead, would provide advice but was doing very little editing. Um, And uh, Ross decided not to. uh, uh, And and I uh, was incredibly moved and and couldn't imagine anything more exciting. You know, because the register, as as Ralph used to say, uh, w- was uh, hard to read, hard to write for, uh, but really, really worth it. Uh, you know, one felt it was of a quality, of a sobriety, uh, of a non-flightiness, of a, a tendency not to take up intellectual fashions, uh, but of a tendency to try to develop... Uh, the best conceptualizations in the socialist tradition possible uh, through a survey of what was going on in the real world uh, year to year. Uh, To be asked to be involved in that, and I already had published two articles and two essays in it, uh, was very exciting. Uh, And I jumped at it, and uh, it became an entirely new apprenticeship. 
uh, as Ralph and I from 1985 on. There were a couple of other co-editors very briefly, uh, but it was Ralph and I who did the work, not least because Ralph was by that point spending half a year in North America uh, mm -hmm. teaching uh, first at uh, Brandeis, then uh, here at York University, uh, then at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. Um, but, you know, he, we would be spending time together, but also just doing this, of course, through the mail. There wasn't the Internet then. Um, right. Much more challenging, yeah. I would bet. And I learned from him, uh, uh, you know, how, how hard work, but how gratifying work being uh, an editor is. I had some experience of that through editing my first book on Canada, The Canadian State, Political Economy and Political Power, back in the 19, late 1970s, and in my role in, in founding and being one of the editors of Studies in Political Economy. But, uh, mm -hmm. but doing it in the register with the quality of people we were able to attract uh, in every volume uh, was very hard work, but incredibly gratifying. I remember there I was with uh, a scissors and tape, cutting to pieces a essay by Ernest Mandel for the 1987 volume and moving chunks of the text around, something that I've become very good at as an editor, as anybody who's been subject to my editorship will tell you. Um, uh, and, and, you know, imagine, uh, you know, me uh, uh, at that point uh, uh, doing that. So, yes, it created a sense of confidence, a sense of purpose. And, and uh, I do think, I'm very proud of this, that the Register um, has remained, uh, you know, one of uh, maybe the, this sounds immodest, uh, uh, publication in the English-speaking world, uh, which uh, perhaps most sustains uh, the uh, intellectual quality uh, of you know what emerged in the 1960s, uh, the purpose and the intellectual quality and commitment uh, of of uh, uh, what emerged in the 1960s that didn't succumb to either the fashionability of postmodernism or poststructuralism or what we called in the 1990 volume, the retreat of the intellectuals mm -hmm. um, in the face of that, in the face mm -hmm. of the political reaction, of course, of, of uh, the 1980s and 1990s and since. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 it has been wonderful. And, you know, it, it's a fantastic thing to be uh, responsible for something, which I, as I am now with Greg Albo, um, you know, where you can invite almost anyone, and most of our essays are commissioned, of course, uh, you know, invite almost anyone around the world uh, to contribute to the Socialist Register and almost, uh, you know, you n almost never get a no. Uh, if you do, it's because, you know, someone is ill or, or sometimes overcommitted. But, you know, that's really uh, a remarkable thing. You know, and, and as George Ross said, and I think it was one of the reasons he decided not to do this, because he was part of an intellectual circle in Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts. He said, look, if you want to be read in Alexandria, Egypt, published in the Socialist Register, if you want to be read in Cambridge, Massachusetts, don't. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and uh, you know, that's something to be proud of, I think. Although I'd be happy to be read more around Harvard. Uh, but that's not the point. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things that, that I admire and respect and probably everybody else who, who is an admirer of the register at this point is, is that uh, you all uh, have a way of consolidating uh, the sort of current going on in the broad left, but without tailing the fads uh, that, that sort of circulate, you know, the, the, the people on the left are sort of jumping from, from thing to thing, yeah. from movement to movement. Yeah. You sort of, you, 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 you're aloof from that without being disconnected from it. Yeah. There's right? a, and I think that's really, yeah, there's an unfortunate yeah, yeah. tendency, maybe a natural one. Uh, you know, uh, when we're, uh, uh, in the doldrums, uh, when we're not feeling and heaven knows the, the left is politically weak in most places. Uh, you know, to look to uh, uh, every new breakthrough, whether intellectual or uh, geographic, uh, with starry eyes. Uh, and there's a tendency to do what uh, uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb did, the Fabians, who are by no means, you know, radical Marxists. Um, who were one of the founders of Lenskov School of Economics, they went to the Soviet Union in 1935 and came back uh, and said, we've seen the future and it works. You know, this was at the very yeah. moment of the show trials. Um, and and uh, there, was a there is a tendency on the left uh, to see the Portuguese revolution of 1974 and to come back and say, it's happening. Uh, or to see Central America in the early 80s uh, and not look at what was going on there that would lead to its defeat uh, or to get very excited about uh, 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 what was taking place in Chiapas in 1994 uh, and not investigate you know, what would lead it to run into deep contradictions. Uh, uh, or to go to the World Social Forums in Porto Alegre, Brazil, uh, and and not interrogate the weaknesses of the Workers' Party, uh, the marginalization of the popular assemblies. Um, and then that happened again, of course, with Venezuela. Uh, it yeah. happened with Syriza. And then what happens in that context, if you do that, is that it, rather than asking the hard questions about what's not working, so that you can take that back home and say, look, we need to figure out, in light of what's not working there, what to do here in such a way that it might work here. Uh, right. You know, you then get disillusioned when things don't turn out as they should. And we talked about this briefly last time. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, people who, I think, soberly looked at what was going on in Greece saw the limitations before they were elected both the constraints they were under, but also their internal limitations. So when they ran up against what they ran up against and weren't able to transcend it, you know, one didn't turn on them and say, oh, you've let us down. Oh, you're traitors. Oh, you betrayed us. You know, one has a sense of the incredibly difficult thing that we're all engaged in. And we want to learn from their limitations, their mistakes, you know, even when they're at their high point. Uh, in order to come back and say, you know, and both and both alert people to, you know, they're not about to create utopia over there, uh, but also learn from their limitations and mistakes. And and the register, I think Miliband always had that. I have to give him perhaps most credit for that orientation. 
and and I think that also was very much implanted in the register and has has continued through, you know, it's over four decades of publication. Well, that's an excellent overview of, of, you know, the last, you know, 40 some odd years of the socialist left coming from through Ralph Miliband uh, to yourself, Tony Benn. We've mentioned a lot of really key luminaries. I, I totally understand that, you know, that they're just humans and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't deify these folks. We should see them as driven by the Far same from it. Yeah, yeah the same uh, <laughs> impulses as everybody else. But I guess. Uh, you know, there are worse things that could happen to somebody than deification, I suppose, after we pass oh, away. Oh, I'm not I, sure. I suppose uh, Deif- vilification. Uh. I, I, I don't think deification <laughs> is what we want. <laughs> it's not. Like I said, you know, Tree, I say, remember me as the coward that I was, not as some kind of saint. Yeah, that's right. right. I think, exactly. You know, that's, uh, so, Leo, thank you so okay. much for, for chatting about this. Uh, I could really pick your brain for hours, but, uh, you know, i got to let you go, and I know my guests are really going to enjoy this, so thanks again. Great to talk to you, Adam. Keep up the good work again, as I said before. Thanks to all my patrons for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I, I, I have, you know, a few years of personal experience with Leo. He and I worked closely uh, during and after my time at York University, but it was really great to pick his brain about some things that I'd always kind of wanted to talk to him about, but never really had the appropriate opportunity. And he's very modest, very humble, you know, about his experience. And so it was nice to have an excuse to do that. I hope you all enjoyed it. Next week, And uh, just several days, I've got a really great episode. I was really happy with the way this turned out. I was kind of nervous about it, to be honest, because it's very difficult and complex subject matter. But joining me is Steve Marr. He is one of Leo's PhD students, actually. Um, He is studying the changing structure of the corporation in the United States. And in, in trying to figure out exactly what is a corporation, how does it function, how does it uh, determine the relationship of classes and political struggle, you know, and, and we talk about some really interesting stuff about how the shifts in the corporate structure have actually shifted dramatically the terrain of political struggle. And really, we as socialists, if we want to change the world, we had really better wrap our heads around this stuff really quickly. It was a fascinating interview, but it was also not very, not very, um, you know, it didn't leave me feeling very optimistic. But at the same time, folks, being blind to reality is no way to go, for sure. If we're going to win, we need to face the hard truths head on so that we can be prepared if we ever get the opportunity to take power and change the world. So... Next week, Steve Marr. Look forward to that, everybody. I've got a B-side, Patreon subscriber-only B-side to that as well. I think you all are in for a real treat. Lots of good stuff coming. Thanks again to all my patrons. You all have a nice week, and we'll see you again next time. Take care.